Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that you have condescended to people like us. Collectively, we have rejected you. You sent your son to us in your great kindness, and we crucified him. And yet you, uh, you continue to pour out your goodness to us. You continue to extend hope to us and call us to dwell with you forever. So in that hope and joy, we gather this morning and thank you for the word that we're about to receive as your gift to us. In Christ's name, amen. Sharing Christmas together with family is exciting, isn't it? Especially to uh, gather as a family and to reflect on how God has revealed himself to us. You probably have all kinds of family traditions that are happening in your living rooms or homes this morning or perhaps are yet to happen. Uh, But this morning, just like the last time Christmas was on a Sunday back in 2005, we get to share our big family tradition of coming together every Sunday morning uh, with all of those individual family traditions. And just like there are many who are gone from our big family this morning that are usually here with us on Sundays, so there may be many of your immediate family members who aren't with you this morning, either because of distance or, sadly, because of death. And just like we, um, we, have, we have that sense that not everything is right in this world, so it is true that we are painfully affected by death, by separation. That is part of the corrupted world that we live in. It's, it's part of this story that we've been unfolding for the past several weeks in this sermon series entitled, Far as the Curse is Found. It's the sad story of humanity that even in our happiest moments, we are forced to remember that things are not as they should be. Tom began the series several weeks ago talking about creation, the beginning of the story, and how God created everything in perfect harmony. There was no tension in the world, no tension between man and creation. Man would have stood in awe of the creator rather than in fear of the created order. And there was no tension between man and the woman. And best of all, there was no tension between man and God. The garden would have been like an eternal Christmas, God always dwelling with man, his presence to them a daily gift. So the first few chapters of the Bible, the most important for unfolding God's story of redemption, show us several specific details about that garden where Adam and Eve lived. One of the more notable features of the garden was this river of life that flowed through the garden and gave life and water to all of Eden. And then we're told that in the middle of the garden, there stood two magnificent trees. One tree was called the tree of life. And it was a reminder that all those who worship God would live forever. The other tree in the garden was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was, it represented the knowledge or or the discernment to either obey God or to reject him forever. We are all too familiar with the devastating decision that was made at that tree. As the serpent came in and tempted the woman and she rejected God by biting into the fruit. And then the man comes along and shares in that rebellion, plunging themselves and all of creation into um, lifelong slavery to, to, to fear, to bondage. In fact, uh, there's a verse in, in Hebrews in the New Testament that says that now through fear of death, mankind, we are, we are subject to lifelong slavery. And so we come to the first the, the end of those first few chapters of the Bible, and we're left breathless, devastated. You know, it's like if, if, you've, uh, if you've ever wondered where evil came from, you might, you might read these first few chapters and you think, wow, it's, it's all right here. This is like reading my own history. And, uh, 
the question is left in our minds, and what's, what's the end of this story? What's going to happen? Have you ever read a novel and not quite got to the end? Or perhaps you've gone to a movie and you get called out just before the resolution to the plot line and you're just, you're kind of left anticipating what's going to happen next? How does it end? Well, if you know how to read a book, you know that the end of the story is usually foreshadowed in the beginning. And the same is true in this story as well. In fact, the most comforting feature of this little mini story of man's rebellion against God is that right in the middle of it, God makes a promise to man that foreshadows what the end will be. And what kindness, that even as man makes himself God's enemy, God makes himself man's friend. And the promise goes like this. It's in Genesis 3.15. It says, God is cursing the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That promise is God telling man that he himself will send an offspring or a child, who will crush the head of the serpent that led mankind to sin. And then last week, Daniel explained how mankind would have been left anticipating who would this offspring be. So Cain comes along, and would it be Cain? But then he fails, and so maybe Isaac or Abraham or Joshua or Solomon, who would it be? And then Daniel explained that in the incarnation, God taking on human flesh is Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is the promise kept. We celebrate Christmas this morning because God, who had dwelt with man in the garden, was now dwelling with man again in Jesus Christ. And this is good news because just like in the garden, there would have been eternal life for all those who worship God. So now in Jesus Christ, for all those who worship God through Christ, there can be eternal life again and fellowship with God. That's the message that Tom spoke about last night, the idea of redemption, that man can be rescued from our bondage to slavery and fear and death. That word redemption is like a word picture of man as slaves to death. The death that we brought upon ourselves by yielding to temptation. Not just Adam and Eve in the garden, but us every day. We contribute to the chaos that's in the world through our self-exalting and God-rejecting decisions. But Christ has made a new ending to this story possible. He has written a new story for us. He makes forgiveness of sin possible. He makes the fear of death then unnecessary. His coming, which is our Christmas story, spells eternal hope as far as the curse is found. So I want to bring you to the end of the story for a moment. Turn to Revelation chapter 22. It's the last chapter in your Bible. I want to show you how the Bible envisions the end of all things for those who worship God. Living in the eternal life of the Garden of Eden required that mankind worship God. Living in fellowship uh, with God through Christ means worshiping him, means honoring him, enjoying and seeking to obey God because he created us. And for those who live in this way, there can be a return to an even greater garden than Eden. Look at Revelation 22, 1 through 5. The Bible says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, 
but the throne of, of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This city is the finale of God's story. And doesn't it seem incredibly similar to the garden at the beginning of the story? I mean, look again at these verses. Notice that they both have a life-giving river flowing through them. They both have a tree of life, which brings healing. In both places, God dwells with man, and, and men and women worship God and enjoy relationship with him. And in the garden, man was given dominion over all creation. And in this eternal city, verse 5 says that men will reign forever and ever. But there is at least one major difference between the garden and Eden and this eternal city of God. This future city is really much better than the garden of Eden. In the garden of Eden, there was sun and moon, day and night. But in this eternal city, notice that it says there, they, there will be no more night. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. So the end of the story is restoration. But those who worship God will be restored to something even better than Eden, an escalated paradise where the good things of the ancient garden become even better. Notice, first of all, how God's recreating work is completed. So in these verses, we see the river flowing through the middle of the city. This is that river uh, from, the, from the Garden of Eden. And here it is again. You see the same tree of life with its fruit. You see the absence of anything accursed and the presence of God. You see God's servants worshiping him and reigning forever and ever. And the description of heaven as an eternal city actually began back in chapter 21 with those verses that Daniel read earlier, where John says that he saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of heaven from God. So the Bible's idea of heaven is not some ethereal harps and clouds off beyond outer space somewhere. No, it's God coming down to earth and remaking his creation and dwelling with men here. So John sees this holy city coming down from God, and he hears a loud voice coming from the throne of God that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with, him as, with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Christmas is about celebrating God dwelling with men as Jesus Christ. That divine child came and and grew up to wipe away the tears from the eyes of widows, to bring healing to those who are sick, to raise the dead and to begin this process of remaking things, of bringing newness. That's what happens when God dwells with man or within a man. Everything changes. If you're a Christian, think about your own salvation for a moment. When Christ broke into the story of your life, stuff got shaken up, didn't it? Things changed. Most importantly, your heart's disposition towards God changed. Because the Spirit gave you life now, rather than despising the idea that someone might rule over you, rather you enjoy God and you enjoy fellowship with him. I asked Stacy, my wife, if I could share a little bit about her life with you. 
She's a beautiful person. She loves God. She hungers to know him, and it's obvious. But it hasn't always been that way. Stacy grew up in a home where the religious roots ran deep, but friendship with God was altogether absent. Throughout high school and early in college, she was increasingly dissatisfied, always trying to fill up that dissatisfaction with uh, friendships and by trying to excel in everything she did. She was trying to live the best she could, ironically, in order to earn acceptance from a God she didn't love. She moved down here to North Carolina, and her friendships at Elon University quickly led to partying and drunkenness and eventually to the conviction that she could not earn acceptance with God on her own. She couldn't even make herself happy, let alone God. And that's when some Christian friends she knew stepped in and told her about Jesus, how he had lived a perfect life and pleased God so that she wouldn't have to. And now she trusted in Christ. By believing in Jesus, And giving up her efforts to be accepted on her own merit, she fell deep into the grace of God. He recreated her. He made her new. Not new flesh, but a new inner disposition towards God, where once she had trusted in her own merit to achieve salvation, an effort, by the way, that never goes well for anyone, she now trusted in Christ and in his perfect life. She was made new. She was now joyfully demonstrating uh, love for God and enjoying fellowship with him, this God who had demonstrated such great compassion and love towards her. She was made new. And this is what it means to be a Christian, to be made new. In fact, the Bible says that if a person lives in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come, and that all of this is from God. But that newness that comes from having relationship with Jesus is both a prerequisite and a foretaste of this newness that's to come in this eternal city where God makes all things new and finishes that work. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to know that the Bible teaches that being made new through Christ now is actually a prerequisite to being made completely new as part of this eternal paradise. The person who does not cling to forgiveness through Jesus for our rebellion against the creator God will actually be eternally banished from this paradise, much like Adam and Eve were banished from the garden in Eden. Sometimes I think it's ironic that we humans can want so little to do with God here on this earth and yet think of him as unjust for not welcoming into heaven those who rejected him here on earth. That's partly why this new life in Christ is a prerequisite to entering there. But if you are a Christian, then you should think of your salvation, this new love for God that you have, this enjoying of fellowship with him, as but a foretaste of this eternal communion with God, of this eternal perfection that is in him, of the newness that will come when our bondage to sin and death is completely undone and we are made new completely. When God completes the restoration project that he has begun in Christ. When God dwelt with us in Christ, Christ inaugurated this process of making all things new. When God dwells with man again in this eternal city, he will finish that project. When God dwells with men, newness will be completed. But second, notice that the communion with God, fellowship with him, is perfect in this eternal city. So in these verses, several elements of the description here work together to convince us that the relationship between God and his people is perfect, as it was meant to be. 
So look at the end of verse 3. It says that God's servants will worship him. This is what it was supposed to be like. Harmony and absence of tension in relationship with God, that happens as we worship God. Also, the end of verse 5 here notes that God's servants will reign forever and ever. So the unity and fellowship with God even extends to the point that his worshipers share in his rule over all things. But perhaps most striking in these verses is verse 4, where it says, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That is the very essence of communion with God. This is what it means to fellowship with him, to look on his face, to see him, to pause and just gaze on his magnificence. It says that not only will his servants see his face, but his name will be on their foreheads, which intensifies this notion of intimate fellowship or communion with God. He has marked them as his own forever. This idea of beholding God, of seeing his face, is actually somewhat of a theme throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, Moses uh, goes up into the mountain, and Exodus 34 tells us that the glory of God actually passed in front of him. Moses sees the glory of God and and talks with him. And, And as Moses goes down, they actually have to put a veil over his face because his skin is shining because he had talked with God. And then in the New Testament, Paul explains that situation. It says that now we as Christians can behold God with an unveiled face, seeing his glory, beholding his glory, and that what it means to be a Christian is to be transformed in that same image from one degree of glory to another, and that that comes from the Spirit. And then John, the same one who wrote the book of Revelation that we're looking at this morning, also wrote another epistle, another letter, where he says that, um, that Christians are God's children now. And he goes on to say that what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. So to have communion with God, among other things, means to look on him in the Bible, to meditate on what he has revealed about himself, and to contemplate him as worthy of our affection and our devotion. It's this personal and satisfying relationship with God where we gaze on his glory in the word. It's a relationship, and like all relationships, it takes time. But it's intensely worth it to know him and to be known by him. How is your relationship with God going? The reality for most of us, this past year, the amount of time we have given to reflecting on God, to communing with him, is probably not nearly what he is worthy of. There is so much peace and joy to be found in communing with God. Maybe you've had one of those experiences like Moses where you walk away from communing with God and maybe your skin isn't glowing to the point that your family asks you to put a veil over your face, but you have this glowing sense, this sense of great joy and, and settled peace that you have fellowshiped with God. Maybe this Christmas day, even if it's been a long time since you felt something like that, could be a day where you determine to take some time away from friends and family for a moment just to gaze upon God's glory in the scriptures, to reflect on his love for you and to enjoy fellowship with him. The greatest gift of heaven is that that communion, that fellowship, will be perfect and unending.
But third and finally, notice that the eternal freedom from that curse that was leveled in the garden is certain. It will never happen again. So the curse of physical and spiritual death that was set upon the human race by Adam in the first garden will now be permanently and completely undone by the lamb in this final garden at the time of new creation. All of the, all of the death, the distance and separation that we've been subjected to in this life will be removed, especially the possibility of being separated from God. But not only that, also the whole range of physical sufferings and sorrows to which we have been subjected in this life will be forever undone. Notice what this passage says about the water of life. The water of life and the tree of life, they're central features of the city. The river flows through the middle of the street of the city and gives life. And the tree of life has these leaves that are for the healing of the nations, it says. Well, that healing isn't some kind of temporary healing for these illnesses and ailments that will keep occurring throughout eternity. Because chapter 21 has already told us that there will be no more tears or pain, nor death, nor crying anymore. So the healing that this tree brings is a permanent, once-for-all healing. It's definitive. The wholeness that is produced by these leaves will never end. And verse 3 says, no longer will there be anything accursed. So in this eternal city, not only will the curse which we now live under be removed, but there is not even a possibility that any kind of curse will ever be reinstituted. That is very different from Adam and Eve's situation. In the Garden of Eden, although it was established in perfection, it was accompanied by a warning, wasn't it? God had told man not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that if they rejected him by doing that, by disobeying him, then immediately a curse would fall and descend upon creation and sweep over everything like a tidal wave. No such warning here, though. Search this passage. There's nothing like that here. There's only promise. The promise is that the curse will be undone, forever banished from this new heaven and new earth. That's what the line from the Christmas carol, Joy to the World, means when it says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. The curse being undone will mean many, many things for us. Among other things, it means that we will be working in heaven. Remember, work was not a part of the curse in the garden. No, the curse was that work would become toilsome and laborious and sweat-producing. In heaven, we will work and find great joy in it. We won't spend our weeks looking forward to Friday. We'll gladly rejoice in the work that God gives us to worship him. Not only will work no longer be toilsome, but there will also be no fear. Can you imagine living an entire life or even just one day without fear, without anxiety, without wondering what's going to happen next? This will be the undoing of the curse for us, and it will be great joy. Do you see how the end of the story is better than the beginning? One theologian said, the point is that God will make the end like the beginning, though the consummated garden will exist on an escalated scale in comparison to the first. So these verses at the end of the Bible are the resolution to the plot line. It's the answer to the question, what happens at the end that we're left with at the beginning of the story? 
the hero, Jesus Christ, has led his worshipers to this eternal city. Here is the final destiny of those who worship God through Christ. There is no warning attached because there is absolutely no possibility of failure. Those angels that barred Adam and Eve from ever re-entering the garden in Eden will now stand at the gates of heaven forever barring evil from entering that city. It is a perfect place. With the Garden of Eden as the first chapter then, and this eternal city as the final chapter, our lives take up just a part of a chapter somewhere in between. One Christian author said, It's the point of Christianity that we each do play an irreplaceable part in the cosmic drama, a story in which some of the strands only come together in eternity. In such a story, what you do counts infinitely. But even non-Christians and pre-Christians have shared this sense of storied lives. They all believed that the best incentive to moral behavior was this conviction that we are part of a story that begins before us and goes on after us, but whose outcome we may influence. The important thing then is to play our part well. So there's the story. Creation, corruption, the incarnation of Christ, redemption, and the final chapter is restoration. There are some engaged couples in our church. They have lots of anticipation for a certain day in the not-too-distant future when their hope of being married becomes a reality and their joy in one another is brought to a consummation. Like two people engaged to be married just cannot wait for that day to come, If you are a Christian, then your Christmas morning, your Christmas day today should be characterized by genuine anticipation for this coming day. The fact that Christ has come and God has dwelt with man once in him assures us it is a down payment on the fact that he will come again and God will dwell with his people forever. An eternal Christmas story. God dwelling with men forever. Let's give thanks. Lord, we thank you for Christmas morning. We thank you for the joy of celebrating. We thank you for Christ, the hero of this story who has entered and brought redemption for us, brought the possibility of forgiveness from sins. I pray that this morning you would increase our joy in these truths. Feel free to take a moment to respond in prayer, and in a moment Jack will close us.